Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 26. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, I talk about some cutting-edge intel with Matt Bromley, and then I deep-dive the Capital One breach with Datadog Cloud Threat Detection Engineer, Dave Johnson. With me to talk through the content being posted to Lima Charlie's Intel channel on the community Slack is the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Good. Hey, Chris. Hey, everyone. Really, really looking forward to being here. I love when we get a chance to have these little chats. There's always so much goodness going on inside of our Slack channel, and it's, uh, it's, it's great to be able to kind of come back and reflect on it as well. Yes, it is. Uh, before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to Yohai Greenberg, David Burkett, and Josh Tremblay for constantly posting so much goodness into that channel. It's a community effort, and lots of people contribute, but those three are there day in and day out sharing high-quality information, and it's really appreciated. So thank you all. Yeah, huge thanks. As always, let's talk about the big stuff first. CrowdStrike reported the 3CX supply chain attack. The target was a voiceover IP or VoIP phone that is used by approximately 600,000 companies with over 12 million daily users. Yikes. Some of the more notable companies using this technology are American Express, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, BMW, Air France, Toyota, Mercedes-Benz, IKEA, and the UK's National Health Service, which you may remember was one of the biggest victims of WannaCry. What do we know about this and who is behind it? Yes, this is the smooth operator, I think. The smooth operator malware that was detected. This is a pretty big incident. Um, I think it got announced last week, if I'm not mistaken. This is late March 2023. So a few things about this one. First and foremost, it was one of those supply chain attacks that kind of really ripples throughout the information security industry very quickly, which means there's a whole plethora of blogs and attributions and discussions and things out there. And the interesting thing about it is, Chris, as you mentioned, this type of attack went after both the Windows and Mac OS versions, which I won't say is typical of malware. Typically, Windows gets hit really hard, but supply chain attacks like this, you know, I, I think show a little bit of extra effort on the threat actor perspective when you have both Mac and Windows being compromised in that sense, just because of the, the different ways that the malware might work, number one. Number two, so as a supply chain attack, What's typical in these types of attacks is someone found a way to get into a trusted process uh, when it comes to software, either software updates or file downloads or code being loaded and things like that. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, this was, I believe, a software supply chain attack in which they were able to compromise the installer for the 3CX desktop app. And what happened there is they went in and compromised the installer to have some malicious DLL files associated with it. And what would happen is once the new file got installed, the malicious DLLs were there. So the EXE itself was not compromised. It was the additional files that got loaded subsequent to execution that were compromised. Mm. And long story short, the way that this would work is the malicious code would get loaded. I think it reached out and downloaded some base 64 uh, encoded icons or something along those lines. And those ended up having different data appended to them. And it was kind of like a multi-stage download process where eventually some malicious software or malicious code would get executed on the system. I believe it was deployed out as an info stealer. We're going to talk, I think, about info stealers a lot in the future. They're pretty common and also growing in popularity malware types. They do exactly what we've described. They go and steal information off your system. Uh, You know, we load up so much stuff on our systems these days, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But we have, you know, passwords, financial information, crypto addresses, all sorts of things loaded into browsers and loaded into software and applications these days that these types of malware go out and they look to steal that type of information and then potentially bring it back to the threat actor for 
subsequent use and things like that. Um, I've done a lot of reading on this one. I would say the best thing anyone out there could do right now if you use 3CX is follow the guidance of the company itself. They've done a really good job, I think, of pushing updates out. Sometimes companies go quiet when they go through a breach. I think 3CX has gone the opposite route. They've gone through, they've updated, they've posted. The CEO has been very upfront and been like, hey, we know we have an incident. My focus right now is getting it fixed. And then we'll talk about what happened. We'll give you postmortems and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd recommend going and following their recommendations, which typically center around security software, patches, um, updates, using certain versions of their software. Uh, there was even a tie-in I read with Windows Defender automatically uninstalling and reinstalling the good version and things like that. So I highly recommend when you when you get into a situation like this, especially from that software supply chain compromise. You know, because what's happened there is the installation process, the update process of that particular piece of software is what's been compromised. That can really throw a wrench in the engine because if someone says, oh, just download the latest copy, it's safe. It's hard to really trust that process at the moment because the process itself is what got compromised. Um, So that's why I recommend following the guidance. And then, you know, if you're out there and you're utilizing any sort of endpoint protection software, uh, something like Lima Charlie, for example, you know, you want to have the right detection rules in place. If you've got an antivirus system, make sure that's updated and patched and everything. Um, and really just kind of go the route of, hey, we use this software. They had a widespread issue and we're going to work to, you know, mitigate this the best that we can. I will say the flip side of this, everything that I've read so far about the response, I believe, as I mentioned, it was the kind of communications desktop app that was compromised. It wasn't the software itself, meaning, you know, this isn't an all out ban on using 3CX or anything like that. It's more of the particular vehicle that you would use from a desktop perspective was what got compromised. So in that sense, you know, I wouldn't say don't even use the software anymore. I would keep utilizing it if it's critical to your business operations. Just be careful about the way your users are doing it and follow the guidance of, of the company itself. Well, that's great advice. These supply chain attacks are nothing to laugh at, but that doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, it's an interesting one. If I you know think back to some of the different types of supply chain attacks that we've seen before, the one that kind of shook the world for the longest time was SolarWinds. The only reason I'm mentioning SolarWinds is there was some discussion last week of budget cuts restoring us to a pre-SolarWinds era and things like that from the U.S. and United States perspective, obviously. It's the type of attack where, and this is what makes supply chain attacks so potentially scary, is you develop a piece of malware, you infiltrate and infect a supply chain, a software supply chain, and all of a sudden, with one update cycle, you know, you've gone from maybe zero infected users to like 600,000 infected users. And that scale of magnitude, that, that quick speed of magnitude, is just astounding for a lot of folks. It's really tough. And SolarWinds was another example of that. The scale of just how big those type of infections can get um, is what really, I think, throws a lot of a lot of security analysts and a lot of companies as well kind of for a wrench because it's not a necessarily a targeted one-off thing. It's not like, a, am I infected? Am I not? It is a select star. It is everyone who's out there. And, um, you know, it ends up being a coordinated response effort, which is very helpful. It's great when companies like 3CX are very responsive and posting stuff ahead of time like they are, but it doesn't mean we still don't have work to do when it comes to patching and updating and things like that. And if a large organization like IKEA or Mercedes-Benz gets compromised, it's really hard to actually know if these bad actors still have a foothold somewhere, right? 
Yeah, and that can end up being the tough part. Now, without going, like, I think we could spend almost our entire session on this one today. But I have an interesting theory about this, which is just how effective the threat actors can actually be with this much data. So whilst the big names being compromised, first off, it speaks volumes to 3CX's customer list because they've got software that is utilized by multi-billion dollar companies, which is which is good. But I think the other route of it is, you know, if I have a piece of malware that's installed on 10 systems and I'm slurping data from those 10 systems for a month or two months, there's a lot of time to go through that data, right? If I've got a piece of malware, and, and if I remember correctly reading through, I think there was maybe two dozen or three dozen domains associated with this malware where it would call out to. Um, I'd be really curious to see the traffic statistics of how much traffic, how much information was stolen and actually was shipped out or was exfiltrated out to those um, adversaries, out to those malicious domains, primarily because I I think you get to a certain point where, and and I'm going off numbers just based off of some of the blog posts and things, 3CX has over 600,000 customer companies with 12 million daily users. Folks, remember at the other side of that malware infection chain is a bunch of humans who need to do a thing, right? Those humans don't necessarily have all the time bandwidth and wherewithal to parse and process 600,000 customer companies worth of data or 12 million users worth of data in the two, three weeks that the malware has been out there. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, Chris, as you mentioned, is, of course, the foothold. You know, all it takes is one compromised piece of malware out there to keep stealing information and send it back. Luckily, uh, there are other ways we go about this. Internet companies, you know, your Microsofts and your Cloudflares and Googles and companies that have good insight into like DNS operations and internet traffic flows and things like that, um, they'll work really hard to either kind of get these domains sinkholed or get them shut down. From a network detection perspective, we can hard code known bad domains. The adversaries were exfiltrating to known domains, which means we can analyze the malware and find those domains. We're not guessing in this case. So I can put in very specific network blocks as well. So even if I don't get every compromise executable out there, you can certainly, you know, implement network detection mechanisms and, and even host based too, right? With Lima Charlie, we can detect network or we can observe network traffic. And in any event, you can implement detections that are very, very high fidelity and say, hey, you know what? I may not uninstall every executable, but I'm certainly going to catch every threat or every packet that gets sent out to it. From the Repo Iso Department, on March 15th, agents arrested Connor Brian Fitzpatrick on a charge of conspiracy to commit access device fraud. You may remember his work from back in October 2021 when he sent tens of thousands of emails from an FBI domain. His handle is pompompurin. <laughs> uh, he's been very active across a bunch of hacker forums. Uh, I only read a synopsis for the arrest that was pretty light on details. Do you know anything about this guy? Was he just in it for the lulls or was he profiting from his hacking? Yeah, so this is, I think, the Breach Forums Raid Forums guy, if I'm not mistaken. This is one of those websites or one of those things that pop up that allow adversaries to sell access to organizations as well as sell data um, that they had stolen as well. And Breach Forums was that marketplace, if you will. And uh, I believe this individual, uh, Mr. O- uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, sorry, was uh, the operator, the guy behind Breach Forums. And I'll tell you right now, the the United States legal department, legal you know law enforcement is not going to mess around with you selling that kind of stuff, especially if you're operating within 
the 50 states of the United States. And I think this guy was in New York, if I'm not mistaken. This is the type of offense where if you get caught running these types of forums, for anyone who's really curious and a great story, go read about uh, Silk Road and that kind of stuff or go watch you know the documentary about the Silk Road from back in the day. But if you're going to go through and you're going to start posting uh, stolen information about people or information that should not be made public and you're going to sell it or offer a marketplace for folks to sell data back and forth, you're going to have a tough time uh, with law enforcement. So I would expect him to be facing a pretty stiff sentence. I don't have an idea of just how long it's going to be, but there usually are uh, minimums associated with these types of things. I'm reading through some of the details, kind of some notes I've got in front of me here. I, I think he's in the Eastern District of Virginia on a criminal charge related to the creation and administration of a hacking form and marketplace. And, uh, you know, sometimes they go on account of every single impacted organization. Uh, sometimes they go on number of gigabytes found. Sometimes they go on number of users. Long story short, I don't think Mr. Fitzpatrick is going to be having a fun day ahead of him in the any near future whatsoever. Um, and maybe it's a really good warning for folks out there as well. First off, don't operate these types of forums. Don't run them. What you do is you create a marketplace for this type of malicious activity. Uh, and I, I won't go as far as to say if you actually had to do it, but I would just say I would not really recommend doing these things inside of U.S. jurisdiction either. But nonetheless, you are right, Chris. One thing you mentioned, I believe this guy started to gain some of his uh, infamy by, I think, some FBI-based email spoofing or information stealing or something along that line. I think he had some FBI databases or something that may have contained some emails and things like that. And, you know, for me, that's just kind of, I'm not sure how lucky you think you are that you can post leaks or post databases related to the law enforcement agency that's coming after you. But if you want to be that brazen, then expect the hammer to fall, drop when it does. So, and that's enough, I think, idioms for, <laughs> for, for, for one particular description. But nonetheless, I think he's going to be facing some interesting sentencing and some interesting convictions, if you will, um, once we see this case kind of play out. Yeah, and apparently he's only 19 years old. It's really a tragedy that, you know, he's obviously very talented. He's so young. So uh, I'm just hopeful he comes through this thing and turns his life around. Yeah, we see another one of those, uh, you know, young teenagers kind of getting involved in these types of malicious activity and things like that. You know, it's it's really I'm going to say it's sad to see uh, only because he was running a website. He was running a marketplace. And if I back out enough and I keep the adjectives vague enough, right, he was running an online store. That's it. And it's kind of like he had the skill set to certainly go and do it legitimately as well. He just decided to sell, unfortunately, malicious content, stolen content, illegal content. And now here he is. The next one I got, Sentinel-1 reporting on the Cat B ransomware family, which is sometimes referred to as Cat B99 or Baxtoy. Uh, this group has been active since late 2022, and their activities have gained attention because of their ongoing use of DLL hijacking via the Microsoft Distributed Transaction Coordinator, or MSDTC, to extract and launch ransomware payloads. Do we know anything else about this group and uh, what it is about the attack methodology that makes it worth calling out like this? Yeah, so let me uh, let me let me answer those in, in reverse order. You mentioned it kind of in your intro about the uh, Cat B ransomware family or Cat B ninety nine or, or Backstory or however they're called. And by the way, I just I just have to reflect on your comment from earlier. I, I don't know where some of these names come from, but usually there's like a snippet in the code somewhere that's like a note or a marker. But I also kind of go the route and I'm like, you know, as the analyst, you have the freedom to name it yourself. But whatever. 
So CADB utilizes something called DLL search order hijacking, which is the second part of your question was kind of like, what does this attack methodology, what does this look like um, in this sense? And you're right, they do take advantage uh, or they do abuse, if you will, the MSDTC service. Essentially, what's happening in this case right here is as the MSDTC service is started up, or I should say as the initial stage of the malware is installed, it modifies permissions and startup parameters for MSDTC. What that does essentially is it loads a malicious DLL when MSDTC is started or restarted. Um, And then that malicious DLL subsequently means, all right, now I've got bad code loaded into memory and I can start to go do a bunch of different things. And it being ransomware, cat B or cat B99, uh, then subsequently works to carry out ransomware operations. From a methodology, or I should say an initial infection perspective, DLL, search order hijacking and things like that, I won't call them new or novel techniques. I think we've seen quite a lot of malware authors utilize these types of techniques. Where they become interesting is I think they go to kind of that next level of evasion detection. Um, And what I mean by that is like kind of baseline system AV and, you know, maybe lower capacity or lower featured EDR tools might not detect this type of stuff. You know, you're you're kind of doing DLL uh, inspection or you're doing inspection of DLL code that's loaded into memory in order to figure out what's happening here. You're basically monitoring the startup process of an executable to see what happens and then subsequently analyzing that code to see. And in this case, again, it might evade some kind of lower level or maybe first tier types of defenses, which is where I think they tend to find a lot of success is you do not have to have the most advanced piece of zero day DLL loading malware. You can simply use a tried and true method like search order hijacking. Uh, Once it's in there, you know, the malware then starts to go through its certain encryption routines like any ransomware malware does. Uh, One thing that I did read that I think some folks have noticed that sets CAT B apart is when we think of ransomware infections, we're used to kind of a ransom note being left at the end. Cat B does not do this. They actually append, or I should say prepend, uh, a ransom note in the beginning of each file that gets encrypted. So you get the same effect, which is your users can't open a bunch of things, but then you've subsequently got to analyze the, uh, the file or you've got to read the header content to see why you're unable to open it. And then there are key files that get dropped. So this is, an, I think, another interesting side of it. As I was reading more about this particular group or this malware fan, family, a key file is dropped in C colon slash users public. Quick detection tip for everyone out there. Users public is a directory I would never want to see an individual file written to ever. So there's a great detection rule for you. Um, but interestingly enough, this key file is one that must be included in email correspondence with the attackers as it is a unique identifier for each victim or host. And I just have to say, you know, the, the record keeping that this group is doing behind the scenes is just absolutely, uh, it feels very, Chris, we've talked about it before on, on this, uh, on the, in these episodes about, you know, the business side of things. And I just love the idea of like, hey, I'm going to infect your systems and I'm going to give you your own API key that you need to interact with me with, you know, and it's kind of, if we flip that around, it's very synonymous with how most software works or most cloud-based software works. So interestingly enough, they're going the same route of saying, hey, here's a key file you need to use for communications. This helps us identify who you are and helps us identify, you know, how to address you, where you are in your time frame and things like that. Uh, another interesting side of ransomware, as we've talked about before, which is just simply, 
you know, it's it's a business, it's a revenue stream for some folks, and this group has a unique way of going about it. You know, they're very strict in their communications. As I read, they've kind of got one email address. You have to email that one address. You have to send the key file along. They will give you uh, three files. They'll let you decrypt three files before payment has to be made. There is a Bitcoin wallet, which as of the posting of this content was still at $0.00 last I checked, or at least maybe the money's been shuttered out. Not entirely sure. But nonetheless, another ransomware family. They've got their own type of techniques, their own types of things, prepending files as opposed to leaving ransom notes, key files and users public, things like that. I think some of these create really, really great indicators that we could use as in our detection rules to help identify, you know, potentially malicious software in the environment. But I think this is just another example of a ransomware group doing their thing. Oh, and by the way, the cat B terminology, I think, comes from one of their proton mail addresses, which they use for communications. I almost wonder by prepending the uh, ransom note into the files, if they're eliminating, like if they're using a spray and pray approach, they're eliminating like non-technical lower value users from jamming up their communication channels because it does require some level of sophistication to find that note and send the key in. It, yeah, it's possible. I think it gets prepended as plain text. But the tough thing is it won't open as you expect. So if I go to open a Word document without going too far into the structure of, of Microsoft Office files, but a Word document is essentially a zip file. But when I double-click a Word document, if you think about the process, right? If I double-click a Word document and I'm on Windows, Windows know that, knows that docx files are associated with Word. So it calls Microsoft Word, sends that file to Microsoft Word. Microsoft Word loads that file, opens the zip in memory, parses what's inside, and sends it back to me. And then I, as the user, interact with that file. If the starting part of that file is not what Microsoft Word is expecting, interestingly enough, it's going to come back and it's going to say, hey, I don't, I don't know how to open this thing. You know, I don't know how to open this file, which is where 99% of users get caught with ransomware. Hey, help desk, my thing's not opening the way that it's supposed to open, right? And then you kind of go a little bit further down the road, and that's where it would take, I think, to your point, that additional step to be like, well, hold on a second. Why are no Word docs opening? Let's look at the contents of this thing. Oh, there's an interesting, you know, an interesting key in there. What I find unique, two things about this group that I think I find maybe a little frustrating for some of us out there. The first one is, I, I believe if I read correctly, they have a, a pretty strict timeline. They have a a five-day window in which the price increases uh, every day for five days. Oof. And then following the fifth day, there will be, quote-unquote, permanent data loss, if you will. And I'm, I'm reading some of Sentinel-1's posting here, which is a fantastic blog post, by the way. But I'm reading through that, and there's a, a permanent data loss that the victim does not comply. But that being said, I, I would kind of say, if you're going to give me a timer, maybe make your ransomware infection a little more loud and proud, you know? Maybe kind of like <laughs> yeah. a big air horns blasting or a, a text file dropped on the desktop. I'm not entirely sure. But in that same vein, right, if the goal is to, to minimize detection opportunities, as much as I really can't stand this, some ransomware detections are written based on notes. They're written based on the ransom notes that get dropped at the end. I, I've talked ad nauseum in many forms before, if you're waiting to detect the ransom note, you're way too late in the process. Um, it's kind of like I detect someone burglaring my house, 
by listening for exhaust as they drive away. (laughs) And it's kind of like, you're way too late at that point, you know? But the flip side of it is, if I'm a malware author or a ransomware author, and I want to find ways to minimize that footprint, I might not want to drop a note. I might want to hide that ransomware data somewhere else, like the beginning of a file, for example. And then I am going to just simply hope you detect it and hope you find it. And maybe that's another way to get more money, right? Maybe it's a way to kind of say, well, you know what, Chris, I, I, I infected all your stuff on Monday and you didn't reach out to me till Thursday. So three days have elapsed. So the price is this. And it's kind of like, well, I didn't detect it until Wednesday. And it's like, that's not my problem, you know? So who knows? Uh, There's probably a lot of reasons for that. But uh, I'll go back to, I think, the example I maybe gave you in in our last session or two sessions ago, which was there, there was a meeting where a bunch of people sat around a table and said, hey, I got an idea. No text file, no note. Let's prepend it to the beginning. They held a vote and everyone decided that was a good idea. And that's what they did. So. Nonetheless, uh, here we are talking about, you know, a piece of ransomware that tends to be a little more secretive than other ransomware families that are out there. There's a new everything info stealer on the dark market called Radamanthus, which is being referred to as the everything bagel info stealer. It was launched back in September 2022 by a person who is currently going by the handle King Crete. The post announcing the availability of this info stealer reads like any high-tech marketing copy, outlining its vast technical capabilities and even offering hosted versions on a subscription model like any SaaS company. Obviously, the person who created this malware doesn't care what anybody does with it. They simply want to be paid. The malware is opportunistic and by default indiscriminately targets all countries with the exception of the Commonwealth of Independent States. How do you get infected by this malware and what does it do? Yeah, so this is another info stealer. This is similar to what we talked about a little bit earlier in in today's episode, too. This is one of those pieces of malware that goes out and, once again, steals information, hence the name, and, you know, kind of does what it does uh, to grab data and, and push it back to, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say the author in this case, I'm going to say the the purchaser or the, the operator, the handler of this particular instance, because as you called out, Chris, this is a piece of malware that's for sale out there that we can just go and use if we want. I or as you mentioned, there is a subscription service. I'm looking at it right now. It's $60 for a week, $200 for a month, $500 for three months, or $1,000 for lifetime usage. They do accept a surprise, surprise Bitcoin payments. Um, but I, I think you've called it out. This is, you know, uh, one of the economic sides of malware that's out there. This is a person who has created a piece of malware that, believe it or not, and I'm not giving anyone any credit but I will say has been received very well by the underground community. You know, this thing was launched with all sorts of marketing, as you talked about, uh, and it's got a lot of great reviews and great ratings per some of the blog posts that I've read, which, you know, come back and say, hey, this thing is a really good piece of malware. It does what it's supposed to do. It works out well, worth the money, rep plus plus, things like that, you know? And I think that just really speaks to the economic side or the capitalist side of malware, which is there is a middleware market for I'm going to design a great piece of malware. I have no interest in infiltrating companies myself, but I know that there's plenty of people out there who want to infiltrate companies or want to steal data. They can't write malware. I can. Let's meet in the middle. I'll sell you services to my thing and it works out great. And and here we are. You know, from an infection perspective, uh, I believe, unless I'm mistaken in this one, I think the infection tends to typically happen in what I'm going to call kind of the um, the usual ways 
if you will, which means we could have the malware deployed via some sort of a drive-by or we could have it deployed with a spear phishing email or something along those lines. You know, I've noticed that there's also some droppers associated with this as well. So it is probably one of those like, you know, wrong place, wrong time type of instances. We, we clicked the spearfish or we visited the wrong watering hole or browser extensions or whatever it might be. Um, once that thing's installed, its goal is to then start to steal information and send it back, which is a, unfortunately a pretty typical, pretty typical approach. Interestingly enough, and I think this one kind of wins the award for the most neon I've ever seen in a malware page, the Radamanthus, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, has some interesting marketing associated with it. It's got, as I mentioned earlier, subscription capabilities, but guess what it's going out to steal? It is stealing out uh, crypto wallet information. It's got the ability to pull back passwords. It pulls back various system information. And I believe it's also got some PowerShell execution as well, which might extend its feature set a little bit further. So rather than just stealing a bunch of data and sending it back to me, it might also say, hey, I can use this as a way to gain an additional foothold or run some additional code um, on the system. And that's maybe where you see the malware start to enter a different stage. And I think as a malware author, this is where that individual has also realized, hey, if I've got this foothold, if I've got this presence, how hard is it for me to bridge the gap between running arbitrary code as well? And it seems that they've integrated that functionality too. So lots of capabilities in this one. Again, loved by the underground community currently. Great support. I noticed support's available in English and Russian if you need it. You know, anonymous payments accepted and... uh, Guaranteed transaction support and things like that. So an interesting take, but nonetheless, uh, it's it's out there for use. And I would just tell folks once again, similar to what we talked about earlier, I would um, focus on patching. Ask your vendors if they've got support or they've got coverage for this type of malware. If you're curious about it, and of course, you know any detections you can drop into place to help find it because there's a ton of open source information out there about reversing it. Certainly implement those countermeasures. Um, one thing that got me about this one, it's criminal who is not ideologically motivated. They're purely in it for the money, yet they've written it to not target the Commonwealth of Independent States, which looks an awful lot like the Soviet Union did before it collapsed. Surely there are people to steal money from in that region. Why would the malware developer give this region a pass? I think this is the age-old approach of marketing and public speaking, which is know your audience. And uh, as much as I do not want to issue a generalist statement because there are some amazing people in that part of the world as well, um, I think there's a lot of criminal organizations or criminal entities who will buy and use this who also live live in those regions. The other thing uh, a lot of times also has to do with law enforcement jurisdiction because of where those criminals often reside. They tend to not want to, uh, how do I say this, um, you know, do activity in their own backyard. And that kind of stuff, if you will. So they will typically operate in some of these member states um, or some of these independent states, if you will, where there's cross-border jurisdiction built in and there's all sorts of law enforcement information sharing and that kind of stuff. So for that reason, even if I you know, don't live in one of the big names in, in that Commonwealth, uh, I don't want to get into a place where the jurisdiction or the police from one is you know, extraditing me over or anything like that. The other side of it might also be kind of a CYA approach, which from a malware author perspective is always an important skill to have. But it might just be one of those things where they're saying, hey, you know what, as the author of this piece of malware, I don't want anyone using this in a member state that then may trace back to me 
So it's a twofold, right? It protects the malware author, but it might also by, you know, inadvertently protect the customers of that. And that's a really easy way to say, hey, I don't need to know where you're located to know where you're located. And it's it's an interesting technique that you'll see used a lot in a lot of different malware families out there as well as they'll do exclusion of language sets. They'll do exclusion of IP address ranges. Um, they'll do all sorts of tips and tricks to avoid compromising people in their home country or home region. The last thing I'll drop in there, sometimes, Chris, you'll see this from an analysis perspective. Um, you know, I might be writing a piece of malware as a malware author. I might be writing it in an area and I don't want to turn around and infect myself. So inadvertently, I'm, I might build in my own kind of exclusion. You know, if the primary language pack of my malware is Russian, or sorry, of my system is Russian, and I don't want to infect myself and I don't want to infect my friends, then I'm just going to drop in a really quick, which is like, don't infect anyone with a Russian language set as their primary language set. Now, inadvertently, that saves millions or hundreds of millions of people from getting infected. And it sometimes can also be a selling feature too, which is like, hey, I, I won't infect this. I won't infect that. Last but not least, uh, I think it's also money. You take a look at the countries where they're most likely to pay, where you see the most money coming from. And then as a business owner, right, I, I hate to make legitimacy out of this, but we have to, to understand it correctly. As a business owner, as a malware author, or as someone who steals information and is attempting to sell it back, as someone who is trying to sell access, as someone who is trying to take a thing and make it a marketable commodity. So if I've got a piece of malware that I sell to you, and you go and install it, and then you want to sell that install off, I obviously want to make the best possible product I can. And I'm not going to do that by giving you access to a country that doesn't care or won't negotiate, doesn't have any money, or has a law enforcement that will just come and crack your head open without thinking twice about it. Instead, I'm going to want to say, I wrote this piece of malware. It allows you to install in non-extradition countries, countries that pay, countries with money, countries where law enforcement can't touch you, and I'm going to charge a premium for that, and you're not going to think twice about paying it. Wow. Yeah, I, we're going to definitely have to do some uh, special editions just on the business side of malware because I, we I are. absolutely we are. find it it's, fascinating. It's fascinating. When, when, like, I almost just described any SaaS product to you. Yeah, and what's crazy to me is like they're super talented, super technically capable. Yeah. You know, starting a legitimate business would probably be just as hard. And you, you think. have to look over your shoulder, right? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a thin line, right? Between I know how to write code and I know how to write code maliciously. All right. So uh, the last one I have, uh, pretty exciting stuff. If you're into this sort of thing. The folks at Mandiant have assessed with high confidence and identified a new APT. APT43 is a North Korean group that uses cybercrime to fund espionage operations. Campaigns attributed to APT43 include strategic intelligence collection aligned with Pyongyang's geopolitical interests, credential harvesting and social engineering to support espionage activities, and financially motivated cybercrime to fund those operations. I think the geopolitics aspects of this is above our pay grade. But what does this new classification mean for defenders? Yeah, so this is this is uh, one of those big earth-shaking movements when it comes to threat intelligence and threat actor identification and things like that. Folks over at Mandiant have, you know, gotten to the point where from an intelligence perspective, they've got enough 
clustered and attributable activity to be able to say, all right, we've got an advanced persistent threat, a new APT group, APT 43 coming out. Um, And as you mentioned, it is attributed to North Korea. First off, I I think this is uh, whenever a new APT group gets announced or is formalized, it's, it's a big move for a lot of folks because we're not looking at a you know, new piece of malware that someone reverse engineered over the weekend, right? We're looking at a group, and if I'm not mistaken, I think ABT43 has been traced back to 2018, right? We're looking at five years of culminated knowledge from a highly reputable intelligence source, right? This is, this is big stuff. This is a government entity of a foreign nation is being attributed with doing certain things. So there's all sorts of impact here. And granted, you know, being a North Korean uh, origin, if you will, or a North Korean nexus, uh, we've got all sorts of various ties with this. Um, I think anyone who has been kind of caught in those crosshairs over the past five years maybe certainly has had a run with them. Interestingly enough, Chris, you mentioned this too, that this type of group, or I should say APT43 specifically, has been aligned with their geopolitical interests, you know, and that can include everything from defending their state as a nuclear power or defending their their belief as a nuclear power to, you know, wanting to impact their enemies, which is an ever-growing list, all the way to wanting to steal data for competitive advantage, for intra-country development. Um, and then you also mentioned, and, and I know APT43 in the past, as some of their different types of Group names um, have also been associated with, you know, this this type of activity, but the threat of cryptocurrency stealing or, or crypto theft. And a lot of this comes down to just how much money does the country have? How much money are they able to put towards their operations? And I think uh, North Korea falls into an interesting state, at least in my personal experience and reading. It falls into an interesting state because they are a nation state. And when we think of APT groups, we often think of very well funded, but they are a nation state which will grow and, and attempt to steal money in order to continue to fund their operations. And I think that just speaks towards how much money they've actually got or how much they dedicate towards um, you know, their, their hacking groups and their information security groups and things like that. There's also a high government organization, and what I mean by that is government direction, which means uh, APT43 has got a lot of associations with things that Pyongyang has wanted to happen. So the demands of Pyongyang's leadership is the direct line from the APT report. But this is very much, you know, government targets, military targets, diplomatic targets. If you think about all the different things that North Korea has done over the past five years, and again, we're recording this in 2023. So the groups, you know, since 2018, that's where my five-year time frame comes from. But if you think about everything North Korea has been involved with in the past five years from a geopolitical stance, which Chris, as you mentioned, is way above our heads in some cases, but let's just say it's a lot of global reach. Right. There's a lot of discussions that have involved North Korean operations and things like that. You know, it just goes to say that just like any nation state out there, they're going to want to spy. They're going to want to perform espionage. They're going to want to steal data. They're going to want to gain an advantage. And I think that's exactly what this type of group does or what this uh, disclosure does. So huge hat tip to the folks over at Mandiant for once again, kind of having the Intel corpus enough to kind of bring all this together for us. This is a, I always think APT group announcements are a big deal for information security analysts and infosec people in general out there. Maybe not because you'll see a ramp up in targeting from them necessarily. I I don't think that there's some sort of like, hey, now we're an APT group. Let's go nuts, right? Pop the champagne or anything like that. (laughs) Um, 
But what I think happens when these types of things get announced is you see a massive change in retrospective operations. You know, Mandiant's announcement of this and the releasing of the different indicators and the malware families and all sorts of different things that they do, the way that the clusters are brought together means that, you know, folks who work for private organizations or maybe other incident response companies then can go back and say, oh, these five or 10 things that I've done over the past, you know, five years are actually correlated. They actually tie back together. It was the same threat actor. So there's a lot of retrospective clustering that comes out of these types of announcements. And I think it's a huge, you know, I know personally when I would work incident response cases in, in you know, previous roles, you'd kind of like you'd solve the case, if you will. But sometimes incident response cases feel very isolated. Uh, you don't really have the context about why a group may have done a thing or it, it's not your goal, right? Your goal right then and there is not to understand the threat actor's motivations necessarily. It's to close the incident out and eradicate the threat actor from the environment. And then reports like this come out and it gives you that extra little bit of context that you maybe didn't have because Mandiant's got that wide reach, that wide clustering approach which allows, allows you to step back and say, oh, okay, so that's what, you know, that's what was happening or that's what this indicator was or that's what that piece of malware did or something along those lines. So um, again, really interesting when this happens. I've been talking about this one for a while, so you can tell I'm always a huge fan when these type of announcements come out because it does shine the light in some areas of malware and threat actors that we maybe didn't have before. And uh, there's a Great quote from a movie, Chris. I won't name the movie. See if any of our listeners can maybe ping me in Slack when you know what the movie is. I'll send you a t-shirt if you get it. Yeah, a t-shirt if, if you know where this quote's from. Ping Chris or myself if you, if you figure it out. But there's a great quote from a movie that describes, um, well, they're talking about journalism in the movie, but I think information security can be the same thing. There's your hint, by the way. They talk about activities as sometimes uh, fumbling around in the dark looking for a light switch. And I feel like that's what these types of threat reports do is for incident responders who are maybe kind of just hopping from case to case or consultants hopping from case to case, you might never see the larger picture. And then someone turns a light switch on and all of a sudden, boom, you see how everything connects together. So if you know what movie that's from, and it may be multiple, but the most recent one, you can ping Chris or myself and we'll send a t-shirt out your way. All right. One thing I'm curious about, you know, we've talked about the modus operandi of APTs. They generally like to go low and slow. They're, they're not there to do ransomware. They want to slowly exfiltrate data and maintain persistence. When a group like this is acting to raise funds for, to fund their operations, are they going to use the same techniques we see from any other drive-by ransomware group, or is it more calculated? Yeah. So I think uh, it's funny that you, that you've, mentioned this one uh, only because North Korea historically has botched some some financially motivated thefts with like typos and things like that. Um, so I, I'm inclined to want to say not this country, but nonetheless, there is an interesting take on this one, which uh, is, you know, do we do we see a change in TTPs based on the goal, a specific point in time goal? And I think in some cases you will. And what, let me let me expand upon that one. If I'm a an APT group like APT 43, you know, maybe for a month we need to raise funds. So we're going after and stealing some money. But the other side of it is, you know, we are also focused on long term strategic intelligence collection or 
competitive intellectual property theft from an academic organization or something like that, right? Uh, you've kind of got what almost sometimes feels like competing entities here, right? Because we're very used to historically thinking of financially motivated threats as like smash and grab, whereas ABT being that, as you described, Chris, that low and slow, right? Um, and I think what this type of group does is it actually shows how threat actors might incorporate both styles depending on what they need. I'd argue the opposite and say some APT groups out there don't really have to go the financial route. They they don't have a need to. So you never see them, you know, turn on that engine. Whereas APT 43 might need to turn on that engine. So, you know, we've talked before about the thin line between if I spearfish someone, what do I do with that access? Well, there's a multitude of operations out there. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing in these cases is you've got a group that is able to craft spearfishes, is able to get a foothold in an organization, is able to exploit that organization, is able to steal data or, or whatever it might be. This might be where I go the route of say, okay, you 10 over there, you're low and slow academic intellectual property theft, you 10 over there, I need you to target these banks or target this cryptocurrency generation or target this coin or, or whatever it is, right? And all I'm really doing is taking the same skill set and I'm changing like the final objective at the end, but my tactics and my skills or my group's skills and capabilities are still the same. Right. So access tactics are generally the same. It's just what they do once they get, get in there. Yeah, I believe, I, I think in, in a lot of cases uh, that they are the same, you know, I mean, I, I, let's, let's, let's take a type of attack, for example, right? If, if I've got a APT threat actor, and I'll, I'll make a little pyramid about this here. If I've got an APT threat actor who's been in an environment for, you know, two years, and then I've got a ransomware threat actor who gained access and ransom the entire environment in 48 hours, okay, two years versus two days. My entry vector was spear phishing. So at some point, and this isn't true of every attack, right? But at some point, there was a, te a, a technique or a tool or a tactic crossover where spear phishing was the common denominator between these two things. So if I've got a really good spear fish and I send it to a university and my goal is to get infiltrated into the, you know, whatever research department of that university, right? Or think tank or whatever it is. And I'm pulling directly from ABT 43, by the way. They went after think tanks and academic organizations and stuff like that. But if I've got a spearfish that works really well with getting me into those types of organizations, Chris, how, how wide do you think that line is that can also get me spearfished into a cryptocurrency team, if you will? Not that, not that hard. Right, not that uh, not that difficult. It, it's the same type of technique, and it, it can get me access into these types of things. And you know, I don't I don't think it's really that far of a use of skills to potentially kind of bridge that gap. The other side of it is, you know, I, I'm looking at some of the report details here and stuff like that. But uh, 43 APT 43 utilized cryptocurrency services to launder stolen currency and. I think that's another really interesting side of it as well, which is, you know, once they had stolen this money, they had to do something with it, right? They had to launder it. They had to make it feel or seem legitimate again and things like that, right? They had to hide from global financial authorities who will look for that type of stuff. But I think more importantly, and I'm glad you asked because the report calls this out and I'll just go straight off of Mandian's report here, uh, the prevalence of financially motivated activity especially or even amongst those that have focused on espionage, 
suggests a widespread mandate to self-fund and be self-sustaining. And I think that goes back to the government, government directives, government mandates, which is, I want to have a hacking group, but you need to pay for it yourself. And it's kind of like, (laughs) well, hold on. You want us here, but who pays for all this, you know? And I think that's what goes back to it. So great question. And it's also a really good examination. And again, a huge prop to Mandy for calling that bullet out specifically, which is this feels a little different from what we're used to seeing from APT groups. Why is that? And a lot of it comes down to specific country, specific nexus, specific um, associations. And then also uh, I would, I would call it funding. So, you know, we get down to the, the governmental perspective of, I want to have a thing. I understand my country's need for a thing, but I can't afford to pay for this thing. So tell you what, you guys have a wide range of skill sets. You pay for it, right? I want a hacking group, but I want that hacking group to be self-sustaining. So you all go pay for it. Anyways, um, nonetheless, an interesting take, but we could spend more time on North Korea uh, in a separate session. And perhaps we should, because it's a great case study for how APT groups can really push the boundaries on what we think APT groups should be doing. But there are some amazing, amazing typos and blunders in those history, in those historical lessons as well. Well, we're at time, Matt. So thank you so much for joining us again this week. Always appreciate it. Lots of great stuff. Love being here. Thanks again, Chris. And a huge thanks again to everyone in our uh, Slack channel, everyone in Lima Charlie community. Keep those discussions going. We love being able to interact with you all. And don't forget, if you can tell us what movie that quote was from, send it to Chris or myself, and we will get some swag your way. Awesome. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Up next, I'm going to be talking about the Capital One breach that was discovered on July 19, 2019, with cloud threat detection engineer Day Johnson. The attack compromised the data of 100 million individuals from the United States and 6 million from Canada. The stolen data included credit card info, account balances, credit scores, payment history, login credentials, and even social security numbers. Absolutely not the information you want floating around on the dark web. Hey, Day. Thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on here, Chris. It's great to be here. Before we get started, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us what your company does, and what it is you do there. Yeah, most definitely. So um, I am a security engineer at Datadog specifically focusing on detection engineering and threat detection for multi-cloud infrastructure, cloud workloads, identity providers, and other SaaS uh, integrations. Datadog is an observability and security company. What we do is essentially give you all that you need to monitor and secure your cloud applications, everything from traces, metrics, logs, detection rules, and a lot more. And my role specifically focuses on bringing security context to the already existing observability data that our customers are leveraging by researching threats and using that data from that research to build out-of-the-box detection rules, log parsers, pipelines, dashboards, and more. Uh, You also have a fairly popular channel on YouTube. Do you want to quickly tell us about what the purpose of that is? Yes, definitely. So I started this channel about three years ago when I was 18 and just starting out my uh, cybersecurity career. And the goal initially was for it to be an online diary of my journey to cybersecurity. But over time, I found that I had a bit of a knack for teaching and sharing what I was learning. Um, and that led me to start doing more technical content around home labs, cloud security, and other things of that sort. So all these things kind of come together to make the channel what it is currently, uh, which is pretty much a comprehensive diary of my journey over the last three years and everything I'm learning and will be learning in the future, both technically and career-wise. Very cool. And for anybody listening who wants to check it out, it's uh, Day Cyberwalks. 
Uh, that's D-A-Y-C-Y-B-E-R-W-O-X. So we're here today to talk about the Capital One cyber attack that was discovered July 19th, 2019. This was a huge incident that affected well over 100 million people at a very high level. Do you want to tell us what happened? At a very high level, the attacker was able to gain initial access due to a vulnerability on the AWS WAF that allowed a server-side request forgery, or SSRF. And this SSRF vulnerability allowed the attacker to have direct access to uh, the underlying EC2 instance metadata service. Keep in mind, back then it was just the version 1 IMDSV1, which essentially contains metadata about the EC2 instance. Now, at this point, the attacker is still operating at the AWS data plane. So in order for them to pivot into the control plane, they use the IAM credentials, which happen to be uh, a part of the instance metadata, to gain further access into the AWS environment, and thus using that uh, access to exfiltrate sensitive data from an S3 bucket. When I first started reading about the attack, I was thinking there's no way this was enabled by misconfiguration or lack of proper configuration. But sure enough, it's the same old story. Can you explain what the attacker did to gain access? What is it that they exploited? At that time, I don't even think it was even considered a misconfiguration because IMDSv2 was not available until later in 2019. But in terms of how the attacker actually gained access, what happened was an IAM role is typically associated with an EC2 instance, and that IAM credential for that role is available in that instance metadata. So with the availability of these IAM uh, credentials that were available in the instance metadata, this was an easy target for the attacker to use in order to gain uh, initial access to the environment and then further compromise the AWS environment. Did the attacker need any kind of insider information to perform the attack, or did they just grab this from scanning? Yeah, so at the time, like no one really knew uh, that this IM, it wasn't you know widely available information that the IMDS V1 was much of a misconfiguration or vulnerability. And I do believe the the attacker was actually an AWS employee, so that they might have had some knowledge of this stuff um, that no one else really knew knew about. How would this attack first have been detected initially? Initially, it would be have been detected by looking at someone querying for the instance metadata IP address, which is 169.254.169.254. Any suspicious queries to that endpoint is definitely something that definitely want to take a look at. So they would have had detection logic in place, and this person tripped over a wire that got people to go look. Yes. Do we know how long the dwell time was before they were discovered? Uh, actually, do not have much information about that, but I'm pretty sure there's information about that out there. Okay, but it, was, it wasn't a couple days. It was probably measured in weeks or months. Yes, I think the attack uh, initially happened um, about, I think, in March and then was actually discovered either in June or July of that year. Once the attack was detected, how do you go about determining what was exfiltrated? So from the request the attacker makes to that endpoint, the metadata endpoint contains a ton of data. So you can essentially see what request the attacker uh, made to that endpoint. So if it was for credentials, for the security group that uh, the EC2 instance is a part of, whatever it is, you can find that data as part of whatever request the attacker made to the endpoint. How would the usage of the instance IAM credentials be detected? Actually, uh, AWS has a native service called GuardDuty that actually does this. Um, so basically, there's a detection for when an EC2 instance IAM credential is being used outside of AWS. So essentially, if the EC2 instance is not the source of the usage of, a, of its IAM credentials, GuardDuty is able to detect that activity. Oh, that's great. They have a built-in mechanism for that. Um, a lot of data was exfiltrated in this attack. How exactly did that unfold? In this case, exfiltration was done from uh, an AWS S3 bucket, um, and this was done through a get object request, 
um, which is uh, an S3 data event. So basically, CloudTrail gives you the ability in AWS to log various kind of API calls. However, you have to make sure you have data events enabled for resources such as S3 buckets or Lambda. So that way, when someone is making a get object request, which is essentially downloading an object from the S3 bucket, you're able to detect this. After an attack like this, how do you ensure the attacker does not leave any backdoors and that you've completely removed their access? You take a look at you know what uh, API calls were made with the IAM credentials they had access to, and different ways an attacker could be persistent or make backdoors in the environment is by creating like new users. So you want to definitely take a look at that or uh, creating new IEM credentials or creating a login profile that it can use to get access back into the system. So definitely taking a look at all the various API calls made, the, made by the attacker uh, using that IEM credential or other things such as IP addresses that tie back to the attacker and looking at all of those API calls and determining if there are any, any API calls um, around persistence that, that are worth dealing with to prevent the attacker from getting access back into the environment. So for anybody out there that has a large AWS deployment and is worried about their security, what are some basic things they should be looking at and creating detections for? Definitely want to make sure, like, for first and foremost, your resources are properly configured. So using, like, a vendor CSPM product, Cloud Security Posture Management product, to determine the state of your, your AWS configurations or even open source ones to kind of see where you stand in regards to how your resources are configured. And then from there, start creating detections based off the resources you actually use. So like um, EC2, S3, so like S3, for example, like seeing when someone is getting objects, for example, in this case, when the attacker was able to exfiltrate data using um, get objects or detections around IAM. So like when someone is creating access keys, when a user is authenticating from specific locations they're not supposed to authenticate from, there are very basic things across like, you know, these various resources that you can kind of use as a yardstick for your baseline detections. Um, I also recommend taking a look at an open source threat emulation tool like Stratus Red Team. Uh, disclaimer, I work at Datadog, but this is not some sort of promotion, but Stratus Red Team kind of gives you a really good overview of like various cloud attacks that you know are very typical, have happened in the wild. And you can use this as a basis of detections for the various services you might have in your cloud environment. I think that's valuable information for people out there working in the cloud. And this is a question I ask for everybody that comes on the show. Uh, it's unrelated to the attack we just talked about, but do you have any predictions for the future as wide or narrow as you want? Yeah, I do think uh, we're going to see uh, more advanced cloud attack techniques. Currently, there's just like some basic things around misconfigurations that attackers are using to gain access in compromised cloud environments. But I think over time, as the cloud usage gets bigger and bigger, we're definitely going to see more interesting and more insightful and more complicated um, attack techniques from, from attackers, just like the ones we've seen for Windows or Linux systems over the years. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Day. It's an interesting case for sure, and I'm hoping to do more deep dives into attacks in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Take care. And that concludes episode number 26 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future stories, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. And you can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you on the next episode.